0: Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians, thank you, 7. As always, we try to get one proverb in just to give you a balanced diet spiritually. So we're going to jump into one proverb, Proverbs 12, uh, verse 11, and then we'll jump into the New Testament study. Proverbs 12, 11. It says, he who tills his land, or he who cultivates or works his land, will be satisfied with bread. But he who follows frivolity, or vain things, is devoid of understanding. So he who works the land, he will be satisfied with bread. You see these continuing themes of the virtue of an honest day's work. Now, unfortunately, even society today and the world today uh, can encourage us to get over. right? To get over on the government, to get as much as you can to uh, be able to cut corners, right? We see that in our legal system. Uh, and God has always said, especially in the Old Testament and in the Proverbs, that he, he loves the, you know, the, an honest day's work. But he who follows frivolity or things that are superficial or vain is devoid of understanding. That person lacks judgment. And you'll see a lot of times that their lifestyles reflect their priorities. We've all met, and maybe we've been there at some point, where our priorities are backwards and our lifestyles reflect that. He who follows frivolity or vanity has the "I want" list taking precedence over the "I needs" list. All right? So, just a good lesson for us to some pithy um, one verse, you know, uh, wisdom in God's word. Okay. Now we're going to jump to Second Corinthians seven. Second Corinthians seven, and we saw the last time the importance of separating ourselves from corrupting influences in uh, chapter six. And today the Apostle Paul teaches the Corinthians, and really a lesson that we can learn too, about godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And we've covered some of this, but this is there's a, an added element of a cleansing, of a, a cathartic uh, response, and we'll, we'll go into that. And verse 1 is the, it's really the tie-in verse, and we know that the chapter delineations came many centuries later. But uh, verse 1 is a tie-in from chapter 6 and chapter 7. So 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 says, Therefore, the Apostle Paul says, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Having these promises, again, what do we read in the last few verses of chapter 6? Well, God said, I will dwell in my people. He said, I will walk among my people. I will be a father to them. And if you can get some of these corrupting influences out of your lives, I could even be closer to you. And what do we see here? All throughout the Old Testament, a lot of the stuff was definitely an application for them today or at the time. And then also uh, of future fulfillments. So this is indicative of what? God always told the Jewish people there's a better covenant coming. It's the covenant of grace. He, he uh, made allusions to the Holy Spirit and a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, calling him Lord and Savior. And it's kind of interesting because I was in the store and uh, I was talking to the sales girl. And, of course, God came up somehow. I don't know how that keeps happening. <laughs> but basically, we started talking and she said, I am a Muslim and we believe that we are servants of God, and we cannot call God our Father. Number one, I want to say that sometimes those who are really confused on their theology, what's interesting about what they have is their strong reverence for God. And sometimes the reverence puts evangelicals to shame because they really revere him. And I said, well, we also consider ourselves servants of God, but he is also our father. We see that in the scripture. John 1 says he has adopted us into his family, right? We keep hearing about the father, the father, and and the reconciliation with his children, okay? And he says this the last time. He said, knowing that if we defile ourselves with corrupting influences, our relationship with him will suffer. So what is our response? He tells us. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. The word cleanse in the Greek is katharizo. In the English, we get the word catharsis. I love that word. It's just like a, it's just like a release. It's like a cleansing, but it's a non-physical cleansing. Sometimes when you really get frustrated and you don't know what to do and you just start wailing and crying, and then you find after you cry, ah, that felt great. It just like, it's like a cleansing, right? But of course, we're going to see this in, in a different light. Or let me, let me back up for a minute. Let's talk about cleansing bodily, to be clean in the strictly somatic sense. If you're working all day, especially out in the sun and you're sweating and you're digging in the dirt and you're doing things to cause yourself to get all grimy, Nothing feels better than when you walk into that hot shower and you look down and all the stuff off you is going into the drain. You're cleansing yourself bodily. There's a somatic cleansing. It's a great feeling to take a shower and to be clean. Now in the spirit, as believers, sometimes we may get involved with things we shouldn't get involved with. We may have discussions and say things that we shouldn't. We may be at a location that we know we don't belong, right? And... If you've been a Christian long enough, you may have said something to this effect. After that, you say, it "Made me feel dirty. I don't smell, I don't see any smudges, but it made me feel dirty. There's something on the inside that we just feel, oh, I, I need to get clean. I need to take a spiritual shower." First John 1:9 says, "If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness." The flesh. And the spirit can be contaminated. Now, let me just explain this to you that the mind, body, and the spirit were trichotomous beings, and where the exact delineations are, who knows? Only God knows. We can speculate. So mind, body, and spirit. Let me give you an example. We're going to go in one direction or another. Let's say I I have a bad thought or you have a bad thought, and you start ruminating, you start entertaining that thought. It's in your mind, and you don't take that, that thought captive the way the Bible tells us to. You let it run wild. What eventually is going to happen is your mind is going to tell your body, let's go. Let's go to the place we don't belong. Let's go onto the computer and log on to things we shouldn't log on to. So, your mind now is taking your body, it's, in, it's complicit. Your body becomes an accomplice to what your mind wants to do. And what happens? Your spirit, unfortunately, is brought there with you. Now, this can go in the other direction, too. We can be. A nominal Christian, a barely walking Christian, and you know, for 10, 15 years, and hear a message, and we're convicted. We're cut to the heart. Every part of our fiber is hearing God's word, and we want to change. And our mind says, "You know what? I want to. I, I want to change. I, I got to think, Lord, what would you have me do?" And so your mind tells your body, "Let's get up earlier. Let's serve. Let's be generous. Let's write a check. Let's do this. Let's do that." so it goes from your mind again to the body and then to the spirit and there's other things that i don't are not really applicable today but you can have bodily urges all right hunger you know uh, i'm hot or whatever and cause your mind to ruminate on that and then also go in a different direction but i don't want to cover that right now so where is our moral compass pointing today is it in a good direction or is it in a bad direction today Today, this week, last week, where is our moral compass pointing? Do we need to be cleansed? And these are some questions we may have to ask ourselves. Because the Bible says that at any moment of time, we can change direction, we can repent. And that's the beauty of what God gave us, the ability to immediately repent, to be convicted and repent, and he welcomes that. And he says, I forget your sins. My son's already paid for that. But it's great that you came forward, you were convicted by it, and you confessed those sins. And he says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, some will use hyperbole, exaggeration, to make an excuse for why they don't have to be holy. Oh, they're a bunch of stuffed shirts. They're a bunch of Bible thumpers. I can tell you last night at the sweetheart's dinner that people were belly laughing, they were laughing, they were having a great time, and there was nothing unspiritual about it. It was good, clean, fun. So holiness is not sinlessness. It's not being a stuffed shirt, but it is a call to maturity. It is to be more Christ-like. It is to be less contaminated by the things of the world. It is a process. Sometimes it takes years or decades. Uh, and, and we know that on this side of eternity, we're never perfect. It is available to us, and it is commanded in the scripture. It's not an option, right? We're we're called to sanctification, to change over time, to look back 10 years ago and say, gee, I'm glad I was not that same person. And almost cringe. I hope I wasn't, didn't affect too many people negatively, but things have changed for me now. So it is commanded in Scripture not to stay stagnant in where we are, but to con- keep being conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 2. He says, open your hearts to us, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all tribulation. So Paul seems to be almost changing the subject, but he's really not. He speaks about going from their cleansing to their relationship to him as an apostle, as a spiritual father as a a pastor in many respects there's a purpose here to repent and cleanse right? to move on and to have restored fellowship with the apostle Paul again you see, Paul carried God's truths he was a good under shepherd and it was to the church's benefit to have a good relationship with him and if the Corinthians could have and did eventually separate themselves from these corrupting influences they could be in harmony with Paul now, Paul was walking in the spirit. And as we go through 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see that there were some times that it almost looked like the Corinthian church was going to go apostate, right? He would have had to turn his back on them. Amos 3.3 3 says, How can two walk together unless they are in agreement? And we covered church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. As mentors, sometimes we will have to turn our back on somebody we're mentoring. And that's very very painful. And you can see the agony in 1 Corinthians that it was painful to Paul. He was really praying and really hoping and really encouraging them to change. If we disciple someone and they call themselves a Christian and they willfully fall into a grievous sin and refuse to repent and consider calling themselves a Christian and making a mockery of Jesus Christ, sometimes, painfully as it may be, we may have to turn our back. Now, in the Facebook generation, where we want to gather a multitude of friends in our, in our ledger, that's difficult. You know, that's a difficult thing, but it's necessary. But the good news here is that they did change. And Paul even says in his letters how much confidence he had in them. Uh, you know, he was in, encouraging them. He's like, you know, I know you can rise up to the occasion. I know you can be better than, than what you're doing. Verse 5. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul had trouble in Macedonia, but the news from Titus that the Corinthians took correction was very comforting to him. I mean, I could see Paul, you got to put yourself into the situation. Things were, things were going wrong. His life was uh, threatened. He, he, he births these churches, and then they, they, they start to go apostate. Man, everything seemed to be going wrong. And then he gets the report from Titus. Man, the Corinthians, they received it, and, and, and they're not bitter, and they're changing, and they want restored fellowships. I could see Paul doing cartwheels or the cabbage patch or something to that effect, you know? Just really being excited about it. Um, But all that discipling paid off, producing good fruit. And sometimes it makes the hard times not so bad when we see that spiritual fruit. If you are in Christ and you really want the things of God and you're going through very dark times, sometimes the most comforting things is for when some become mature Christians, when some are convicted and they change, you know, when things are going better, restored fellowships. And you know what? The, the problems and, and the issues that are in your head uh, sometimes pale when we see those, that beautiful spiritual fruit. And verse 6, he says, it's the God who comforts the downcast. And it's sometimes in ways we don't expect. As we go on, we can see that maybe Paul thought that when the news came, it might not have been good. You could see the love he had for them in this letter, but you could see that he was pleading. He was being transparent. He was begging for that restored fellowship, but it had to be on the right biblical terms, you see. But God used Titus in this instance to bring him good news. Now, the key is that we have to allow God to do it for us. Now, sometimes when we go through a hard time, we're quick to pick up the phone, to call another person. We're quick to, you know, make ourselves feel better by engaging in some activity. We're quick to maybe buy something for ourselves or eat comfort foods to make us feel better, right? And God is last on the list. Well, why isn't God doing anything? Well, it just happened five minutes ago. Give him a chance, for heaven's sake, you know? And sometimes it's good to to deal with the situation and really be in prayer in the situation and see what the Lord will do. But I think that in our, you know, if we were in some fishing uh, community in Indonesia, their life is a lot slower paced. You know what I'm saying? We're just so fast as Americans. Some of you are thinking, when I get out of here, what I got to do for the, the next day, and then what I have to do Monday and the projects that are due and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of times as American believers, we don't wait on God. And sometimes God will use a situation that we don't expect to bless us, right? So that's something to, to really think about. And in verse 7, we see the Corinthians mourned over their sin and turned their hearts back to Paul, realizing that he was right. Now, I have to stop here for a minute and just explain a few things. Um, you may be confused in that 1 Corinthians, Second Corinthians. All right, the Corinthians are good, the Corinthians are bad. They're good, they're bad. You know, it's almost like a tennis match. But you have to understand, it was a church. There were a lot of things going on in the church. In some instances, it was false teachers that had come in and poisoned the fellowship. In some instances, it was false teachers that had come in, itinerant preachers, who do, deluded the gospel. Oh, it's salvation, Je- Jesus isn't necessary for that. In some instances, there were factions that got together and were angry at Paul. And in some instances, some repented. He speaks about a particular man and we've covered that. Uh, sometimes the factions, you know, they were cut to the heart and they changed. Uh, certain sinning uh, individuals would change. So understand there's a lot of dynamics in what we're reading, right? So, and just like any other church, it's a cross-section of society, right? And you see many different things happening in every church. Verse 8. Hopefully not as, not as bad as this, though. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul felt bad that he had to send such a harsh, such a corrective letter, and he thought that sending that letter Uh, could have really alienated him from the Corinthians. However, he knew he had to send it. So he was sorry about the the pain that it may have caused or the, the tone or the harshness, but he wasn't sorry about what it produced. Remember, Paul made a painful visit. We covered that. And he also wrote a severe letter that many think was even more harsh than 1 Corinthians. And then he sent Timothy and Titus. Now, sometimes we have to say the things that are harsh when someone is blinded by sin, to get their attention, to shake them up a little bit and say, what are you doing? What are you doing with the life that God gave you? I'll give you an example. I, um, many years ago, it was a couple, a family, and um, somebody made a complaint against the family, and they called Difus, right? So the guy, eventually, the husband gets a hold of me, right, and I'm talking to him on the phone, and I hear yelling in the background, I said, what's going on? She goes, he goes, that's my wife yelling with the DIFUS worker. <laughs> now, I said, tell her to pipe down and knock it off. I said, you don't want to prejudice these people. Listen, a lot of DIFUS people are great. I mean, I think the agency's gotten a bad name. They're just doing their job. But you certainly don't want to get on their bad side when they have the power to take your children away from you for a time. So he tried to tell her, and I could hear she still was going. I said, put her on the phone. Now, if you didn't know what happened up to this point, and I only told you what I said you would think. He's a bad pastor. So she gets on the phone. I said, and she, as she's talking to me, she's yelling to them. You know, at the only the diapers worker. I said, listen to me. After a while, I said, listen and listen good. Shut your mouth. I said, zip it. I'm ordering you to shut up. Again, it sounds harsh. But she eventually did. And they didn't take the kids away. But... Listen, that's not popular today, because if a pastor alienates or an elder or somebody in leadership alienates you, hey, there's about 13 churches in a one-mile radius, no problem, I'm out of here, I don't need that kind of aggravation. Not so back in those days. You had to make it work out, and if you were rebuked, you had to deal with it, and you had to listen and see if there was anything that you could take from it to change your behavior or your heart. Sometimes people will listen, and sometimes they'll gore you like a bull with their horns. <laughs> so, but godly sorrow leads to a few things. It leads to repentance, which is a change of heart. It leads to a cleansing. It leads to a freedom. It leads to a restoration, a reconciliation, and a happily ever after. That's what godly sorrow leads to when you repent. However, the worldly sorrow produces death. It will produce de- depression. It will produce despair. If you don't have Jesus as the object of your hope, and you're a worldly person, and you're um, made sorry, or you're rebuked, you know, where do you go with it? It could produce anxiety. It could produce you being an outcast, and sometimes suicide. Well, that's bizarre, Pastor Joe. Well, let's take Judas and Peter for an example, right? They equally sold out the Lord. They equally turned on the Lord. Peter, let's start, yeah, let's start with Peter. So Peter, um, you know, he's warming his hands by the fire. He's watching the trial of Jesus from a distance. And he's asked three times, Do you, you, you sound like a Galilean. you with him, right? I don't know the man. The third time it said he called down curses. Now, you can only imagine in that culture what he might have said. Now, use your imagination. I don't know. And then he looked at Jesus and Jesus looked at him and he was cut to the heart. And he, he was, I, I could just see him bursting into tears immediately. And he ran and he took off, but he came back and he was one of the best apostles in that group. He was one of the most fervent, and tradition tells us he even, when they were going to crucify him, he said, I don't deserve to be crucified in the same way as my Lord. Crucify me upside down. And that's what happened to Peter. But what happened to Judas? He started off good, right? He was convicted or regretted or remorseful. I'm not exactly what, sh- what happened in his heart, But he went back to the religious leaders and he said, "I have betrayed innocent blood." He took the thirty pieces of silver and threw it down at their feet. This is blood money. I can't even have this. What did he he do though? He went, went out and he hung himself. Right? That's what the world does. That's an unspiritual person. So there's a huge difference. You can see Judas and Peter, and their paths are pretty parallel, and then they branch off. Peter takes the proper direction, and Peter takes his own. I'm sorry. Peter takes the proper direction, and Judas takes his life. And this is the gospel message sometimes, um, that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And let me just say this, that if you don't know the Lord, hopefully the word is convicting you. Hopefully it's doing something. It's, it's regenerating your spirit. Romans 10:17. it's doing something, right? And what we need to do is realize as unbelievers, we've offended God. We've rebelled against God. We put our finger in his eye. We went our own way. We saw his plan and said, eh, I'm going to do it my way. We've used science to try to make pretend that he doesn't exist that's how bad we've offended god right but we need to repent of our self-directed ways of our going our own way of rebelling against god and come to the cross repentance and believe right so what do we do about it that's what we do and if there's any of you here today who don't know the lord this is something you need to listen to and and don't let god's word it's not going to come back void it eventually will convict you in the end but hopefully now you take it to heart. Verse 11, it says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So the big picture is, it would seem sometimes that Paul was, it would seem, if we're not in the spirit, that Paul was saying these things to his own benefit. You know, his reputation was marred. No, 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 he wasn't doing it for that. I'm not doing it for the one who sinned or the one who was sinned against. I'm doing it for the glory of God and the benefit of the church as a whole. And I really believe that. I believe that was his uh, motive and this is what godly sorrow produces he goes through a few uh, words to describe modifiers what godly sorrow does it produces repentance and this was exemplified in the way the corinthians handled the matter when they did repent number one what diligence or eagerness to do the right thing to correct the wrongs two what clearing of yourselves this word comes from a courtroom style defense that they had in that era and not in worshiping your reputation but in not wanting to be associated with the sin you've committed. Remember, this is after the fact. Oh, I can't believe I was associated with that sin. It's such a great feeling when you, when you release that and you just have that cleansing. Three, what indignation. Anger as a result of injustice. Anger that the sin and evil was able to use me to re- rebel against the one that I love, my Father in heaven. So that, that righteous anger at the situation. Four, What godly fear, or what fear, godly reverence. Again, that I was at odds with God and I was putting my finger in his eye. And as a believer, I was using the name of Christ and really making God look bad. I cannot believe I did that for so long. What vehement desire or longing for the things of God and carrying out his plan. I want to restore justice and I want to make it right and I want to carry out his plan. I have that vehement desire unfortunately the deep cravings that many people have and some in the christian community are for the flesh and the world they don't have the deep cravings to follow god to want to hear the word of god to want to be in fellowship with other believers they have deep cravings for what the world has to offer and that's that double-mindedness that james speak about right some will even Come to a church and get a social thing going. And it's mainly for social activity. And stay away from those that set a good example as believers. But try to find the other fleshy believers in the church and hang with them. Because then they know that they can kind of do the dual thing and no one's going to expose it. Right? But our vehement desire, our longing for, has to be the things of God and carrying out his plan. What zeal? In other words, what heat? What ardor? A mindset. A mindset to set about the reforms needed. I, I'm, I'm on fire to make it right. You see all these different you know, adjectives uh, used here. And what vindication, meaning that we're clear or innocent in the matter. In the judicial terms, it would be we're now not guilty. All right? Thank God that he forgave me and lifted the burdens from me of all the wrongs I've committed. Right? It goes to show you how really good godly sorrow is, yet some fight it and drag out the cleansing process. They won't allow themselves to be clean and free themselves from the shackles of sin. When we go to communion today, Paul says this in in 1 Corinthians. He says that, um, you know, to examine ourselves. Before you eat the bread and drink the cup, examine yourself. And so let a man eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the goal is, for us to partake of the bread and the cup. But there's a little part before that where we need to examine ourselves. We need to take a moment with ourselves and God in silent meditation and see where we've gone wrong and see how we can make it right. It's, again, that repentance and that cleansing. Don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And anyone today who's struggling with jealousy, or hatred, or uh, angst, or um, you know, just something in, in our heart, or, or the wrong type of lust, or whatever the case may be. We may have to go before God between ourselves and Him and give it up to Him. Maybe we've been holding on to something for a long time, right? And maybe we do things and we don't realize what, why we're doing it. Why do I keep doing that? I know I shouldn't do that. Where is that coming from? What is it in here that's causing me to to act one way in church and do this when I'm out of church. And sometimes we may need to cry. We may need to mourn. We may need to take that personal time with God one-on-one, right? But it's good. It's good to cleanse ourselves and release that. Verse 13. He says, Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Not only did the Corinthians have a restored zeal for Paul and repent, but they refreshed Titus' spirit. I mean, if, you, if, if Paul could think of the best situation, this was the best situation. Well, I'm, it could be really bad, or it could be really good. Well, apparently, it was really good, right? So much so that Titus had a ball. You know, he had a great time. He was discipled by uh, Paul. He was obedient to go to the Corinthian church, maybe not realizing what could have happened or realizing what could have happened, and it turned out for the better, and it exceeded his expectations, Right? Sometimes there's a situation that we think about and we dread. Oh, I have to do this. Oh, you know, it's a dreadful thing that we think of. But sometimes that the outcome is a lot better than we expected. And what we really need to do is trust God for the outcome. Just do what he's called us to do. One of the best feelings is maybe to agonize about saying something hard and then finding out that it was great, it produced good fruit, right? Being cleansed and being freed, oh, the joy of it. I remember, um, I remember a situation many years ago when I used to go to uh, Calvary Old Bridge, right? And I, I attended there. And there was a situation between me and another brother, and uh, it was really silly. And, uh, you know, I had these feelings inside, a little angst, right? And I, I kind of held on to it for a while. And then one day I just grabbed him after service, and we ducked into one of the pastor's offices, and I said, dude... I need, you need to tell you something. I've had these feelings against you, and this is why. And, and I'm sorry, and I, it's my fault. And he said, no, 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 no. I could understand why you felt that way because I wasn't clear, and I gave you the wrong impression. And he's trying to apologize, but I'm trying to apologize to him, and we're trying to beat each other in apologies. But I felt clean after I left that room, and he felt much better. He goes, ah, oh, I can't believe I gave you the wrong impression. So it's really cool. You know, we can hold on to our pride. We can hold on to our angst. And and I look at it as a mousetrap. You know, you ever load up the piece of cheese and you pull the thing all the way back on a spring and you load the trap and if you you take your finger off the wrong way, it snaps your finger, right? And sometimes in our attitudes, in our pride, in our angst, we have a hair trigger. They just have to say one thing to me and I'm going to close the trap on them. So apparently some of you have been there. And if we do that long enough... No one will come to us. We won't hear anybody correct us. And eventually we'll be so self-deluded to thinking that we're wonderful because no one ever corrects me because they don't want to, because they can see that hair trigger. Before we go home and continue our routine, it might be a good idea to evaluate ourselves and our relationships and to see where the lessons that applied to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago can apply to us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as always, your word, it's amazing. I mean, you designed our minds, you designed our bodies, our spirits.